Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, today I'd like to start out by reminding you of something. There is something coming up here. It's called Wealth Formula Meetup. It's Wealth Formula 2.0, or actually, it's, I think I just called it Wealth 2.0. And it is happening in Dallas, Texas. Um, the great state of Texas, this uh, September 27th and 28th. Now, this is our second meetup. The first one was a huge success. We've got great faculty again uh, who are going to be doing some teaching. Uh, we're going to meet up on the 27th, going to have some cocktails that evening, social get-together. The next day, we have a half day of lectures. Tom Wheelwright's going to fly out. we got uh, Doug Ludmell. Um uh, we've got Dave Steele. We've got a bunch of really interesting speakers and economists. And then we're going to do a real estate field trip across Dallas-Fort Worth, focusing on a number of the assets that we actually already have in Investor Club. If you're a part of Investor Club, you are especially going to love this because you're going to see all of your money at work. So, And you're going to see it, um, you're going to see it in real time. Uh, as we tour around on the bus and 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 talk about them. Um, anyway, check it out, wealthformulaevents.com. And there's only seven spots as of this recording. And I'm recording this, uh, well, gosh, this is, I don't know, it's like the 18th or 19th of August or something like that. Um, and so, you know, it's less than a month away, seven spots left. Don't miss out. And, uh, you know, my wife's actually going to come to this one. At least she says she is. Uh, so you get a chance to meet uh, meet her as well. That alone is worth the um, price of admission, which is pretty darn cheap. It's basically just covering our costs. Not quite covering our costs. But it's worth it to see you because these events are fantastic. And, you know, uh, the most exciting part about it is getting to be with the Wealth Formula community and seeing each other. Now, let's talk about today, this week, the last week, I mean, it seems to me that there is a lot of uncertainty in the air, rocky stock market, tumbling down, concern for recession, tariffs, Trump's talking about, well, he's saying that the economy is rocking and rolling and that's the best economy ever, but he's also angry at the Fed for reducing or not reducing rates enough and also is considering a tax uh, cut on employment taxes. Um, and so uh, so it seems to me that there is some uncertainty there, right? What's, what's the truth? And the truth of the matter is that we're in the longest expansion uh, of GDP 
in American history. And eventually it has to end. It doesn't have to end with a bang. It can just end in a whimper and it can move on and move to the next cycle. And that's okay. That used to happen all the time. I remember in high school, I remember hearing about recessions. I didn't even know what that meant. But I remember hearing about recessions and they would say, um, you know, that the the um, the Fed or whoever it was reported that we were in a recession uh, for two months and it ended about a month ago. You know, it just seemed like life went on, you know, I mean, we 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 didn't uh, all of our neighbors didn't lose their jobs. Uh, it didn't look like uh, there was no zombies in the street. It just seemed like life went on. But then 2008 happened and all of a sudden we expect that kind of thing every time. But, you know, listen, on the other hand, it's probably not a bad idea to sometimes think about the possibilities of something really bad happening. Uh, and, you know, these days uh, when that happens, when people get a little frightened, they don't invest. Right. Which I don't think is a great idea, because, frankly, what's the alternative? Keeping money in the bank? Why? Well, you know, these days people think whether they, you know, think so consciously or subconsciously or whatever that if you have your money in the bank, it is a guarantee, right? It is safe, it's bulletproof. Nobody can do anything to it. And you probably think this because you've never lived through the Great Depression, right? You've never seen anything but bank bailouts and smaller banks being gobbled up by the huge banks that are too big to fail, right? I mean, if you're my age, mid-40s, whatever, even 50s or 60s even, you've never witnessed, you've never been in a situation where you have literally lost money because of a failed bank because, well, there's been FDIC protection. Uh, most of these banks just get bought out by the big banks, et cetera. You don't even notice. You just drive to the bank one day and it's a different bank altogether, right? And you say, well, gosh, what happened to this bank? I've seen that happen a few times. It looks like it's a different bank. They still have your money, but it's a different bank. So that stuff uh, is our new reality. We don't think of banks as risky. But it during the Great Depression, thousands of banks failed. There was no FDIC protection. People lost their savings. And, you know, people living in that period of time experienced bank closings or closing their doors uh, and not allowing them to withdraw funds on a semi-regular basis. It was sort of the normal, right? I mean, that's why the FDIC uh, was put into place. Um, that was the reality of the, the Great Depression. Now, as it turns out, during that period, as banks turned their backs on people, the life insurance industry provided its policyholders with substantial amounts of liquidity at a time when it was really, really needed. I mean, cash value life insurance policies during the Great Depression saved many families from financial ruin. That is a fact. And it is no surprise, therefore, that after World War II, the life insurance industry entered what was known as the golden age of life insurance because those living through the Great Depression wanted nothing more then reliability, they wanted stability, they wanted some growth. Bank failures and stock market crashes were fresh in people's mind. You know, and that was what was making uh, the safe haven of life insurance all the more appealing. 
So I have to say that it is this sense of steady growth and security that's also made me a big fan of life insurance products, specifically products like banking, right? We call it wealth formula banking. And it's why it's such a major part of my investment strategy. It's a dynamic tool, right? It's it's a tool that provides tax-free growth, the ability to have access to significant asset-protected liquidity, an opportunity to provide leverage to all of my cash flow investments, what I call double dipping. But all of this aside, it is also the single safest investment I have. That's my true belief on that. Now, I'm not saying that this is where I dump all my pennies. No, that's not the case at all. Don't get me wrong. The majority of my money is still in real estate, which personally, I believe when done properly and done in expert hands can be pretty darn robust in downturns as well. In fact, did you know that what made those insurance companies so darn robust back in the Great Depression is that they were not really allowed to own stocks, right? They owned real assets. They owned real estate. They owned business, things like that, that didn't nearly get impacted as much as this crazy stock market. And that's why they came out doing just fine. So the stability of life insurance products makes it frankly, really, really appealing to me. So how do I use it, right? Well, you know, apart from all of the things, the, the webinars that we have on wealthformulabanking.com, you should check those out if you have not, because there's incredible, you know, powerful techniques you can use for leverage, et cetera. The, in the grander scheme, I think of, of it like this, right? Some people typically have so people typically have stocks and bonds, right? That makes up their portfolio. Well, I'm not a stock guy. I own some stocks. I own a little bit of Facebook because of the whole Facebook Libra thing, uh, the the digital currency thing. And I think they might be onto something there. I own some some mining, junior mining stocks, which haven't done very well. But those are very, very small amounts of stocks I own. My stocks, my equities are real estate. Really, that's what it is. So that is really the majority of my cash is in real estate. And then, so that's my version of equities or stocks. My bonds are not bonds. It's wealth formula banking, right? I mean, I'm getting like five and a half percent wealth formula banking. Uh, and it's with a company that's been around since 1775 has always paid. People have always made money since 1775 that's reliable and so that's why uh that's my version of stocks wealth formula banking now what's funny to me about being such an advocate for this uh wealth formula banking thing is that despite the fact that it is in its core a life insurance product i think of it as an investment tool for when i'm living right until recently honestly i didn't even think about the death benefit um, you know, but then of course, if you listen to my show a couple shows ago, I talked about this time when I thought I was I was dead, I was um, that I was in trouble, that I was going to die. Well, all of a sudden, I started considering the legacy part of it and the value of the death benefit as well. Now, as investors, though, uh, we don't get to see the upside of the death benefit of our own policies. Obviously, I mean, um, you know, that would be nice, but uh, you can't. Once you're dead, you're dead, and it's not going to matter how much money you make. However, there is a way to get exposure to this part of the life insurance benefit as well. 
It's not through your own policy, but buying someone else's life insurance policy. You see, permanent life insurance policies are assets. And as assets, they can be legally sold to someone else. That's a, that's a pretty amazing thing that most people don't know. And when I first heard about this concept a few years ago, I was amazed, frankly, that I'd never heard about it because it seemed like, wow, that's a great idea. Why, isn't, why don't more people do that? And as it turns out, it was because only hedge funds, banks, and other institutional players were really playing in the market and everything else was just kind of loosey-goosey and, frankly, a little bit risky because there was a lot of bad players in the market. So when I figured this out that I thought, gosh, in theory, this is a really interesting thing, something that I want exposure to. I went ahead and, and started doing a bunch of due diligence on companies and out there popped a company called ASR. Uh, man, I drove them crazy with my due diligence. And so um, I was so impressed by the time that I actually became an investor, I was also uh, partnering with them as a fund manager as well. So that's saying a lot because those of you who know me know I, I really beat stuff up a lot before uh, I'll ever put it out there as a funder offering myself. Anyway, Tim Wright is a partner of a at ASR, uh, and he's also a wealth of knowledge uh, when it comes to life insurance products and their role throughout history and, frankly, in your portfolio, possibly. And if you need some hedging in your portfolio, you are not going to want to miss this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast with Tim Wright right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Tim Wright. Tim is the vice president and senior partner of ASR Alternative Investments. Uh, of course, Tim's been on the show before talking about life settlements. Tim, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Buck. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And, you know, I think it was a it's good timing in some respects uh, to have you now because there seems to be so much uncertainty in the market. Uh, there's so many issues with regards to people being concerned about um, an oncoming recession and and all these things. Um, and and it brought me to thinking about, again, you know, what what do people invest in these in times like these? Uh, you know, and these days, it seems like most people think of, um, you know, life insurance as nothing more than just that insurance for like when you die. Right. Um, but life insurance has had a very long history as an investment. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about 
Um, in fact, going back to you know the depression and 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 what surrounded that, people who survived through that period of time really were you know jamming money into life insurance companies, life insurance policies, and cash, and really nothing else. And I wanted to see if you could kind of add some historical perspective to that because I know that's you know a big part of kind of your approach to the life settlement space. Yeah, Buck, and if you think back to the depression, what was going on? There was Certainly insurance companies have been around since the mid-1800s, and there was trust that was being built over time. But then it shifted when, when you had your, you know, the American public was going out and buying homes. Where did they get that money from? They got it from banks. So they really learned to trust banks. And 1933 was the biggest hit. I think 4,000 banks collapsed in, fourth, in, in 1933. But all in all, during the Great Depression, there were like 9,000 banks that closed. And I know we were really concerned about the Great Recession from 2007 to, you know, 2009-ish. Well, there was only 450 banks that closed during, th during that time. So I think people got reprogrammed because the one place you could go and you could put your money with it and you could still withdraw were insurance companies even during the Great, Dep uh, Great Depression. Right. I mean, specifically because I think the, you know, in, in, in the, um, because the insurance companies did not have very much uh, as I understand it, it uh, exposure to the volatility of the stock market, et cetera. They were holding real assets like they are today. Uh, they generally did, they did just fine. And so, of course, mentally, people who lost all their money in the banks, they didn't have the same faith in banks the way that, uh, that we might today because we think, hey, gosh, you know, uh, the FDIC is out there to protect us. And, um, of course, there's no way if I put money in a bank that it, it's guaranteed for me. So, um, so obviously, you know, we've got uh, people living through the Great Depression, uh, and they had a good reason for all the reasons that you talked about um, trust in life insurance companies. I think you, you know, through the Great Recession, for example, there was no insurance companies that went out of business. Um, uh, and so they had this trust in insurance companies, probably more than banks. But how about today? Okay, let's let's move on today. What makes life insurance companies, and I guess therefore investment into life insurance policies, a relatively lower risk investment compared to you know other assets? Yeah. So if you if you think about oil companies and banks, and you you put all those assets together, and then when you compare that to insurance companies, oil and bank, oil and companies and banks pale in comparison to the size of insurance companies in America and worldwide. People don't realize that. So when you think of just the mass size of the industry, then you think about where the vast majority of companies in our country, especially the institutional grade paper, they're all legal reserve life insurance companies. Okay. I'll say that again, legal reserve life insurance companies. And the reason that's so critical, and I'm sure everybody that has insurance has a policy with a legal reserve life insurance company, John Hancock, Mass Mutual, Penn Insurance, they're all, they're all legal reserve. The reason that's important is that basically the governments, it's state by state, they come in and they basically say, you need to meet these requirements in your cash reserves in order for you to sell policy under this banner of being a legal reserve life insurance company. So why is that important? If we get into trouble and or insurance company gets into trouble, we have that backing. And when it comes to getting, we're not there yet. When we're talking about buying life insurance policies, well, who is your partner in all of this? Well, your real, the biggest partner who's backing it are the insurance companies themselves. So that speaks to the power of why life settlements, we're going to talk about it, 
is so great. Yeah. So life insurance typically, because I get this question sometimes, like what, you know, what happens to a life insurance company if it quote unquote goes out of business and goes into reserve? So first there's obviously, there's a inherent value in its assets uh, vis-a-vis the, the, the life insurance policies. So presumably those are, that's level one. Those get gobbled up. They're going to get gobbled up from another insurance company who's going to want them and buy them at a discount. Great deal for them. As a client, you don't notice a difference. You still got the same policy. I guess the second um, the thing, the, the other thing that you were talking about in general is the uh, you know incredible strength of these uh, companies themselves. You take like Penn and Mass Mutual have been around since the 1870s and have been paying dividends out since the 1870s with you know no uh, uh, you know no end to that. And then there's also reinsurance as well, right? And then after you get past all of these layers, there's this FDIC type layer that you're you're talking about. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And if you think about, you know, people have this confidence that, hey, I've got a bunch of money in my local bank and it's FDIC insured. And you know what? For the most part, unless something really crazy happens, that $250,000 of coverage will be there. But what if you have 500 or a million dollars in your bank account? Well, that's not covered. So that's that's, I think people underestimate the power of insurance because if I have, let's say I do have a policy and I have a million dollars of cash value in there, well, guess what? That's all going to be picked up. If there was an issue with the insurance company, there would be a merger. That company would come in and like you said, gobble up all those policies because here's the real fact about insurance companies. They cannot afford bad press. If there were four or five insurance companies, let's say big names that went out of business this year, well, how much insurance would be sold just based on the fact that those companies went out of business. It would be a lot less. I don't know how much, but you and everybody else, myself, would have less confidence in it. So if there's a struggling company, it's going to get gobbled up because those policies need to pay off as people pass away. That's critical. So, and, and let's, and as a corollary to that, you know, um, the other thing that I hear about sometimes, especially in discussions of life settlements, we'll, we'll get into, but also in terms of, insurance policies, when they buy insurance policies, right, um, and invest in insurance policies. We do uh, a lot of, you know, within our our community, our network, we do a lot of uh, uh, cash flow banking, uh, we call it wealth formula banking. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's something that we generally benefit for while we're living, but there is a whole death benefit, of course, where these things were initially designed for in the first place. Um that as an investor, you may not be thinking about, but is important to your family when you plan for this kind of thing. People sometimes when they are thinking about that and are first buying it, uh, especially in life settlement, the life settlement space, they say, well, what happens if the insurance company won't pay the death benefit? What if they find out that there's some circumstance that makes it so you know, they don't pay. How how common is that in, in reality? And, you know, what are the circumstances of that, uh, in, you know, in, in your perspective? Well, it's, it's extremely rare. And it's due to two words, contestability period. Those two words are critical in a payout of a policy because the contestability period in America is two years. The insurance company has two years to find faults, to have to find fraud, to find issues that would cause them to basically decline a payout of some, of some kind. When the, the critical aspect of, there's, there's, there's a number of them, but the one big one that's first and foremost 
when you're buying a life insurance policy from somebody else, it's got to be beyond the contestability period. Because we, there are case law in this country today, and not that we're out buying fraudulent policies, far from it, but there have been, you know, there's bad actors in every industry, we know that, that have gone out, sold a fraudulent policy, the insurance company didn't catch it for three years, the person died, and guess what? They filed the claim. Well, they denied the claim initially, they go to court, and the court says, no, 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 Mr. Insurance Company guy, you needed to figure that out in two years, therefore, we're going to pay, you're going to pay the death claim. So there's, there's case law in extreme situations, but the real piece is just make sure that you're buying it beyond the contestability period. So let's, let's move on. Cause now we're, I guess we're specifically talking about life settlements, you know, and I've, as I've said before, I'm a big proponent of overfunded permanent life insurance as an investment strategy. Uh, we've done several webinars and podcasts on that. We call it wealth formula banking. However, there is uh, this other way that you're talking about, and I want to dive into that a little bit more in a more granular fashion, which is to get exposure to life insurance policies, these in- incredibly stable assets um, that have got a probably there's nothing with a better track record over the last hundred years um, or more 150 years, but to get exposure to that super stable asset class but not benefit from just the cash value, but the death benefit, right? The part that you usually don't see if you're buying these things for the purpose of investment. So tell us kind of exactly how that works. What exactly is a life settlement and, you know, what makes it, is this legal? That's the other question people get. What, you know, what makes this all possible? Where did it come from? So one of the reasons that I personally have invested in this and all of the partners here at ASR have is that it's really simple. It's easy to understand. There's not a lot of moving parts. And when you think about all the different complexities on Wall Street today, a lot of you could have, you know, 15 different products just based on mortgages. I mean, it's really, really complex. Life settlement's pretty easy. What is it? It's the sale of an existing life insurance policy. Say Bob here is 83 years old. He doesn't need or want or can't afford his policy anymore. So he goes to his CPA or his financial planner and he says, Bob, why do you have this? It's costing you $30,000 a year. You don't need it anymore. Let's go to market with it. And Bob says, I didn't even know you could do that. Well, in essence, they go to a broker. The broker then um, figures out how much that policy is worth. They do all of the HIPAA release information, they get a value there, they get life expectancy analysis done, and then they go to life settlement providers. There's about 25 of them in the US today that are good size, and those life settlement- Life insurance providers, right? They're, well, they're life settlement providers. Yeah, like right, right, and they're they're effectively sort of like real estate brokers for, for life insurance policies? Yeah, I kind of look at them as like the title company within the real mm-hmm. estate industry. They're kind of the, the middleman that work with the selling agent and the buying agent. They're doing all the financial underwriting. So they play a really critical role. They're licensed with the state in which they operate in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really important, I'm say it another way, you would never buy a policy without going through a licensed life settlement provider. That would be a dangerous thing to do. And, 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 and curiously, like you say that, but I have actually met people who have done that and who've gotten totally burned. And what's happened in those situations, um, I remember talking to a doctor um, in my uh, investor club uh, who was talking about how he bought a life insurance, two life insurance policies from a guy who was selling them, um, who was basically brokering them. Like one, you know, like he was just going out and finding people, according to him, who uh, wanted to sell, and he'd sell them to doctors who are usually a, 
a great target for stupidity, unfortunately, in our world. I mean, I'm a doctor, so I can say that. Yeah, yeah, say that but yeah. but um, and uh, and and neither one of them paid out for whatever reason, and it turned out they were basically fraudulent. So how how does going through the right, you know, through a uh, uh, you know a, a life settlement provider in this case, how do you how does it make it a safe uh, and I guess, you know, bulletproof way of doing this where you don't have to worry about the legitimacy of a policy. Well, and, and that's exactly what the provider does. Um, if you were to buy a house, if you sold me your house as much as well as I know you and I trust you, we're still going to go through a title company, right? We're still going to get the title insurance. We're going to make sure there's no liens, there's no encumbrances. We're going to do all that because that's what the title company does. By going through the licensed provider, what you're basically getting there is a financial underwriting. So you're good, they're going to look at liens. They're going to look at the contestability period. They're going to see that the person that we're buying is showing his net worth at $5 million, but reality, maybe it's 500000 You know, They're going to look for fraud. They're going to see if there's an open suicide clause in that because uh, a lot of people don't know that if somebody dies beyond the contestability period or even within the contestability period, with most insurance companies, if you were to uh, commit suicide, for example, it's still going to pay out. People don't realize that. If there's an After open, two years, right? Well, even if you're three months into it or six months into it, as long as there's no foul play involved, if there was a suicide in 99% of coverages, it would pay out. Yeah. Now, that, that is. And so beyond the contestability period, for sure it's going to pay out, but... Every once in a while, you'll find an insurance company that has an open suicide clause in it, in a policy, and that basically states that no matter what, you could be 10 years in the policy, if you've uh, committed suicide, it won't pay out. We obviously mm -hmm. avoid those types of policies. Those are things that a provider, uh, there's about 30 different things they check on, Buck, before, before a, a buyer like us would say, yep, we're good, let's go ahead and do it. So in effect, they are, they are doing all of the due diligence uh, for, you know, for real buyers. And, uh, to the extent that there's a, there's a consensus that you can trust these people. When you go to these things, you're sitting at the table and you're bidding on them against other buyers. Is that right? Who are the other buyers typically? So I, I the number is not going to be exactly right. Cause you never know what it is, but about 95% is what we would, uh, estimate of the buyers in this market are institutions. You know, they're hedge funds, they're big, they're banks, they're insurance companies, even to some extent. And so those are, the, those are the companies that we're bidding against. There's also maybe some individual family offices, those kinds. You're, you're typically not finding a retail type investor, even if you're worth a few million dollars out just buying policies. So it's a market that is nice in that sense that you don't have tons of competition, but that's basically who we're bidding against is institutions. Yeah, so in that, I know I've, I've heard some of the big players, for example, um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, well, they're, they're, they're a big buyer in these. Um, I, think, I think Bill Gates has got a half billion dollars or so in, in these types of things. Is that, does that sound about right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, and again, those things that we hear over the years, I'm sure that they've bought and sold. AIG was you know controlled by Berkshire Hathaway for a long time. And AIG, at one point, this has been a few years ago, they, they owned actually 50% of all the life settlement death benefit in the space. Uh, if you think about how big that is, and we're talking about 
$50 billion market, give or take, because again, most of these companies are not public, so you don't really know what their numbers are, but yeah, 50% of the space at one point was owned by an insurance company. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that, yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Where, so, so um, let's talk about where, uh, real quick, where do these policies come from anyway? Are they typically, um, you know, I've, I've seen some commercials lately of people are basically advertising. Are those the companies that go out and, you know, basically do the first round of, uh, you know, trying to recruit these policies and then they go up to those uh, life settlement providers? Is that, or are those the life settlement providers themselves, the ones on TV doing the commercials? Yeah. So we look at the advertising that's going on right now as a real positive because it's creating awareness, but yeah, like yeah. Coventry Direct, which is what you're going to see on TV. They're basically the broker for Coventry. Coventry is the largest provider in the country. They do probably the majority of the institutional work for um, hedge funds and things like that. So that's where that originally is coming from. When it comes from uh, your original, your original question was where are they coming from? Yeah. I mean, like who, I mean, you know, the, the typical person selling these things, uh, who are they tar I mean, who are they targeting on, uh, on these commercials? It's just people who are, you know, people who just don't need them anymore. So there is a huge, uh, percentage of America that has insurance. Okay. Uh, estimated $17 trillion of life insurance in, in America today in force. Mm -hmm. So that that's term policies, which are huge, obviously variable life, index universal life and whole life. Well, within that, that 17 trillion, you, you have um, a, a small percentage of people that bought policies for um, purposes, for estate planning purposes, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it might be a key man policy. So you and I own a business and we had a couple of insurance policies taken out on us. So these policies are one to three to five to $10 million. They're bigger, mm -hmm. bigger insurance policies. And they get to a point in their life, lives that either might be 80, it might be 85 or even 90, where they really don't need it. They've, they've outlived the usefulness of them. Hmm. Now, if it was five years ago or 10 years ago, somebody that's really sophisticated still might not even know about life settlements. But today, the financial advisors and the insurance agents and the CPAs, they're very much aware of this. So if you, if you have a CPA and you go to them and say, listen, I've got this big policy they're going to tell you, hey, listen, let's explore the options. So we, should we sell it? Should we, you know, what should we do with it? So, so that's where it originates. And then the CPA or that person of influence in their life would basically say, well, let's talk to Bob, the broker, the life settlement broker, not the life settlement provider, but the broker. And let's see what Bob says about this policy. Maybe it's not sellable. Maybe it is. Maybe you want more for it than you can get or a lot of different scenarios. But Bob, the broker, would then take that information and then start vetting all the information out to determine if it's a sellable policy. Got it. All right. So let's talk a little bit specifically about um, ASR and, the, and, and sort of, uh, first of all, how did ASR is, is uh, you know, we work with you guys, but in terms of your history, um, did you guys all, did you start with just life settlements? Did you start with other things? So our, yeah, in 2005, we started, this is our 14th, 15th year of business. We started with um, our two founders, Rich DiPaolo and Joe Barkate, both Air Force Academy grads. They were both um, airline pilots. You know, it's funny how things kind of come together, but they were furloughed 
back in the early 1990s. So they both started a second career. One was in mortgage, mortgage uh, business, one was an attorney. And they met each other back in about 2004. And Joe, who was an attorney, he was a state planning attorney. And so he had, he had clients coming to him. And one client came to him with life settlements, believe it or not. And it was in a different form at the time. And that form's long gone, but it intrigued him enough to go, let me look into this. Let me, let me dive into what this asset class is. He got excited about it, ran into his friend, Rich, and said, we need to talk. And that's basically how it all started. So we are a financial wholesale firm. We work directly with advisors, obviously, like yourself. And we recruit, we train, we support advisors from all around the country. We don't work with uh, individual clients directly. We leave that up to you, obviously, as you know. Um, But that's basically how it started. We do a couple other things, but I would say 90 five to 98% of our overall business are life settlements. We, um, as you mentioned, um, the investor club is, uh, you know, does work with ASR. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, there's different ways to approach this market. And we talked about Berkshire Hathaway and, um, you know, them buying a, a ton of life settlements every year. I can't even remember how much it was like 500, $500 million per year. Um, but I, what, what I found interesting and, um, about this was that the way they approached this apparently is, you know, they just buy a lot of policies and then some of it's not just, you know, holding on until somebody dies, but they're arbitraging these things too. You know, they're basically saying we're going to buy, we'll, we'll buy whatever people are selling if they look like quality policies. And then, you know, in some cases we'll just hold them for four or five years and, you know, all of a sudden they'll be worth more because somebody's older. And so they'll, they'll, they'll do arbitrage that way. So there's certainly more than one way to, um, you know, to, to profit in this business. What is ASR's approach? I mean, in terms of a buy box and what, what are the, what's the theory behind it? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's primary purchases and there's secondary purchases. It's called tertiary purchases. <clears throat> and we um, don't discriminate. It, if there's a good deal on the primary side or the, the tertiary, we'll purchase either side. But in terms of the buy box, we are very particular, um, you know, maybe it comes from our background of the Air Force Academy with Rich and Joe, but we're very conservative in pretty much everything that we do. Um, for example, you could find some companies out there that maybe are institutional buyers. They want to buy a 70-year-old with stage four cancer and, and, and take that risk that that plays out for them and they make a profit. We're, we're in a different position, mainly because we're working with your client's money so our buy box is much more conservative. We want an average age of 85, okay? Mm-hmm. That might be 80, might be 90. We've got them all, but 85 is kind of our average. The life expectancy, which is done by outside companies, we, we're, not a, we're, not, we're not doctors. We don't claim to be doctors. Um, we use actuarials. There's companies like 21st and ABS that are really good at what they do. So that life expectancy always comes back in months. We want to see roughly an average of 60 months or so. Okay, we have some that are longer, we have some that are shorter, but average 60. We want US or Canadian citizens that have their policy originating here in the United States. We will only buy institutional grade paper, so A, a uh, and above. We, we're not gonna buy C paper because then you run the risk of what we talked about earlier. And we've never had an issue with, with a policy not paying off. So that's uh, partially or, or probably solely due to the fact that we're buying the best paper that you can buy out there. I mean, these are companies like 
AXA and John Hancock and Mass Mutual. I mean, if you looked at our portfolio policies, that's who we buy. We're not buying, you know, you know, uh, like I said, C paper. So that's that gives you an idea. Um, try to think what else would be in the buy box. That's pretty much it. And of course, one of the most important things that must be there. Uh, in fact, if you ask our acquisitions team, what's the most important thing that you're that we're looking for when we buy policies? It's premium flow. Okay. This policy on the outside may look great, perfect LE, perfect age, perfect face amount. But if the premiums are 12% of face, that makes no sense and we can never buy it. So the, even you might say, well, what about the price? Well, the, the premiums are all within the price. So you have to make sure the premiums are built correctly or it just doesn't make sense. So that's a little bit about the buying. Yeah, and, and, and that brings up a good point because you're buying an asset, but you're, you're, you're you know, you still have to pay the premium here. So that's got to be part of the equation. Um, So even if somebody's buying an individual policy from somebody else, I mean, if you stop paying, well, and you're, you know, you're just, you know, you're going to be in trouble. So so how do you, when you're designing a fund, how do you make sure that you don't run out of, uh, you know, run out of money, so to speak, and, and all of a sudden not have enough money to pay premiums? How do you do that? Well, I'll tell you the aggressive way and I'll tell you the way we do it because we've seen this done and it's not a good scenario. If we were to buy policies and let's say as part of the acquisition cost only build in one year of premiums, well, on the second year, because I just mentioned life expectancy is five years, right? Doesn't mean they're all going to go in five years, but you could have some go early and some go long. But by year two in that scenario, you're going back to all of your clients and collecting the next year of premium by way of a capital call. That's not good. We, we have never done that and we don't plan on doing that. That's not good. So what we do is we take an opposite approach. We say, listen, let's be conservative and let's build in four, five, even six years of, of premiums within the policy acquisition. So we're not having to go back to your clients for a capital call. Then what we do is when policies mature, someone that's our fancy way of saying somebody passing away, as you know, when somebody passes away and there's a death claim, and let's say it's let's say it's a, a three million dollar death benefit that gets paid out, what we need in our premium reserves at all time is at least ten percent of the current death benefit. Okay, so let's just use easy math and say that the current death benefit is twenty million dollars now because we have that three million dollar mature, so it's twenty million dollars. Okay, so we need two million dollars in premium reserves. If there was $2 million in the reserves and the $3 million policy matured and it went into the account, we'd pay it all out. Every, every single penny would pay it out. But let's just say we had $1.5 million in the premium reserves, okay? And we just have the Jones policy mature for three. We would take $500,000, put it into the premium reserve, and pay out the other two and a half. So clients get paid the two and a half. The $500,000 goes into the premium reserve to keep it at 10%. Now, that's still the client's money. It's still part of what they're investing in, but we elect to hold that back so we're not in a pickle, not in a position where we have to do a capital call. The other thing that you mentioned, um, which I guess helps with uh, you know mitigating some of the, the risk here, because one of the risks, frankly, is somebody living way too long or a lot longer than yeah. you thought. Longevity. Yeah, is, is to have multiple people in a fund so that way you are uh, you know, sort of uh, – you know, some people may die a little early. Some people die on time, and some people die late. Uh, in that, uh, is that uh, is that typically kind of at the 
you know, what's the pattern on these things? I mean, if you have like seven people in this, is that kind of what you see? I mean, I know it's even hard to predict that kind of thing, yeah, right? Is. But is that, I mean, is that kind of what you're seeing? Really what you're trying to do, all this whole thing, you're trying to create diversification at every level possible. So it's not all females. It's not all males. It's a mix. We try to weight it more toward the men. No offense, men. But yeah. that's how it is. We also uh, look for policies with various insurance companies. So, and again, it's never happened, but a worst case scenario, if we bought all AXA policies and we had seven AXA policies and they had problems, then what would happen, right? So we try to really mix that up. Uh, we, we look at different size policies. So we would say our average is about 3 million. That's the death benefit, but you might see one that's four. You might see one that's one and a half. You're going to see various, various, um, levels of diversification within that, uh, within that portfolio of policies. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk just sort of nuts and bolts. Like, so you've got this, you've got this fund, it's a master fund or whatever, and, and you've got, you know, six, seven policies in there. Um, you've got some investors and what happens? Um, so basically what happens is that every time, you know, somebody expires, there's uh, effectively sort of a, a dividend paid out uh, for that portion of the policy to which people own. Is that is that kind of how it, yep. a fund like this would work? That's right. Yeah. So um, is there, uh, is there, I mean, do you design this in such a way that you, you know, cap the time in terms of how long, you know, a policy or you know, a fund might go? And, and is that usually the plan or is it... Uh, yeah. So I'll get into that, uh, get into the weeds a little bit, because I'm sure some of the sure. your, your, your folks listening, the doctors especially want more of the detail. Yeah. So we use what's called a fund of funds process. So what happens is, uh, you know, Buck here would have a sub fund and he would raise as much money as, as he could. But we also have, let's say, 40 other advisors like Buck that are out raising money as well in their practice. And they're not related at all. It's just they also see the value in having their own fund. Well, when Buck and all the advisors raise money, that's going into a client account, right? So if you have an IRA for $100,000, that gets into an escrow account. That money gets moved into Buck's fund. And then the client, you as a client, would own a, uh, um, a share. You would own units of Buck's fund, of his sub fund. And... Uh, then what happens is Buck takes that money, that $100,000, and he invests that into our master fund. So everything we were talking about earlier about buy box and buying policies, our company, ASR Alternative Investments, is the company that has the master fund that's out buying the actual policies. So Buck's fund invests into the master fund. Buck's fund has a pro rata share of our fund. So now if we reverse that, and again, that Jones policy we talked about maturing happens, let's say it's all going to be dispersed, and let's just say, for easy, easy sample, uh, easy, easy math sake, Buck has 10% of the fund. You know, we ra- we have a $10 million fund. You raised a million, and that ten, that $1 million represents 10%. So now we have a policy of $3 million that's getting paid out. You're getting $300,000, and you will then uh, disperse that to everybody, everybody else on a pro rata basis. So pretty simple. Yep. Uh, let me just address one more thing too. You had asked about the timing of it, uh, and I know that you know this, but for all of your listeners, all of the funds that Buck would do are all 12 months, 365 days. 
So like, I know you have a fund that's ending September, I want to say 8th or 9th, it's coming up. And so basically what happens in that fund, the, a new fund will open up, say, September, in, in sometime in September. And there'll be a straddling effect because you'll be invested in two funds. But the key is your fund is open for a year. Our fund is open for uh, 12 to 18 months, roughly. Got it. Let's, uh, uh, I want to make sure that we kind of cover some of the main, uh, you know, the things that you want to talk about, but is there anything else, um, you know, that, that you think that's important to know about life settlements that maybe people don't understand or the way that you think of this uh, in the context maybe of, you know, the economy now or, you know, where does this belong in a portfolio? Yeah. Well, the number one thing that we love so much, again, I told you in the beginning of this uh, podcast that, that, that I've invested a lot of my money into this because of the simplicity of it. But it's really more than that. It's really due to the uncorrelated nature of life settlements. I mean, I own a bunch of it. Everybody here does. And regardless of what the market or any economy does, uh, it just doesn't matter. I know what my death benefit is going to be. And I love real estate. I own real estate. But I also know that if something happens like last week and it just kept going, we had a real rough week, obviously, in the market, and that causes um, a recession, it, it, it causes you know, a real crackdown in the, in the, in the uh, uh, markets, that my house that's worth, say, 500000 could be worth 400000 fairly quickly. With life settlements, life insurance policy, that death benefit never changes. So you, know, you have that uncorrelated nature plus the fact that I have an exit strategy. I know that whatever I invested, I, I know that the death benefit's gonna be X. Plus the fact that it's backed by insurance companies, the fact that I'm getting you know, a targeted yield that is very attractive in today's market. Um, you know, I would say one thing, you know, with, when it comes to what, is, uh, what people might not understand about the industry, let me just address that real quick. When, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. And I think the awareness is helping this about what I'm, what I'm going to say. But you do have people that hear this for the very first time, Buck, and, and you know this, right? That people say, well, gosh, you know what? That seems morbid. So yeah. let, let me get this right. You're waiting for somebody to pass away before you benefit financially. That, that seems real morbid. And it really couldn't be further from the truth. And I just want to address one thing with you. And that is that when people are selling their policy, these, this is a sophisticated sale, by the way. It's like, it's like selling your house. This sure. isn't just like handing over a, a, a deck of you know, documents saying, take it. It's, it's a big transaction. But the reality is the people that you're buying it from, you're doing them a huge, huge service by liquidating a portion of their estate that in some cases they didn't even know they had. Let me give you an example. We've had situations where people, you know, life changes and they need liquidity and they don't have it. Well, if they sold their house all their friends and neighbors, because we all care about that probably too much in our society, would absolutely know that I'm having some problems. Um, if, I'm, if I belong to the country club, right? These are affluent people. If I belong to the country club and I no longer belong to it because I can't afford it, you know I'm having some challenges. I sell my cars. I downsize in other ways in my life. When you sell your life insurance policy, nobody knows. It's the most discreet transaction that you're going to do when it comes to a sizable amount of money that you can bring back into your estate. So 
uh, most people in years past thought this insurance policy that it no longer needed was just garbage. I'd throw, I'd throw it away and it was no big deal. But now people are finding a lot of value in that. Not only the seller, but the buyers and the investors are finding huge value in that. Right. Yeah. All in all, I think uh, if you look at the statistics, I mean, the reason why these uh, insurance companies make money hand over fist is because in part, I mean, they don't pay out very much, right? I mean, not that they won't pay out on something that's actually uh, that they're supposed to pay out, but there's a lot of people who just let these things expire. I mean, and and uh, I think some crazy statistic on that. It's something like 60%. Yeah, it's actually much higher than that even. Yeah. 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 So, and, yeah. I mean, if, if I could just say one thing there yeah. too, Bob, that I think everyone will find interesting. When you think about, because people will say, well, gosh, doesn't this, isn't this going to like decimate the insurance industry. Well, first of all, it's been around for 30 years and it hasn't yet. But right. but, the, but the thing about it is this, the insurance industry is $17 trillion. This right. industry, life settlements, is about $50 billion. Okay. So that's like three-tenths of 1% of the in total policies in force that are affected by life settlements. And yes, when bought right, they are going to pay off and the insurance companies will pay. But it's not like it's 10 or 20 or 30% of the industry, it's a very, very small, to cream off the top a little bit, um, the insurance companies are still going to do just fine. <laughs> yeah. As I mentioned uh, earlier, this is a, you know, this is something that we've been working with uh, uh, ASR in Investor Club. And if you're interested in learning more, there's a video that I did. I played a little bit, uh, I played a little bit dumb here just so we, we could, we could have uh, Tim explain things to us. But uh, go to hedgetheeconomy.com, and that's exactly what this is. That is a hedge to the economy. So hedgetheeconomy.com, and what you'll see there is a little bit more detail on um, how a fund like this works. Um, Tim, is there anything else uh, you'd like to say before we go? We've covered a lot of ground. Um, I will say most people on this call, I'm sure, know of you or know you because they've been watching you for quite some time. Uh, and I know that you didn't ask me to do this, but I'll put in a big prop uh, for you because not only have you been very good uh, with us for, for many years now, but I know that you treat your clients uh, like gold. And that means, means a lot to us. I mean, we, you know, even though we're not dealing with the end consumer most of the time, it means a lot when we have an advisor like yourself who puts so much effort and, and energy and time into the process and into your people. You have a great team of, of people. Uh, and that means a lot. So if you're thinking about doing anything with Buck, whether that's life settlements or real estate or whatever, uh, you're in really good hands. That's very nice of you to say, Tim. And uh, thanks for joining me and, and giving uh, giving people all this insight on, on this uh, pretty exciting asset class. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. As Tim mentioned, our Investor Club is partnered with ASR. If you want to learn a little bit more about investing in life settlements, what that looks like, you can certainly go to hedgetheeconomy.com. It's a webinar I put up there that explains it in a much more theoretical, you know, like what this kind of thing looks like in, in the sense of a fund and, you know, how, how, uh, how an investment would look like, basically. Uh, it's kind of fun, even if you're not interested, especially if you're a physician, uh, because as we go through some policies, people are real sick and you'd be pretty amazed at how these things get uh, rated. Um, you'd think somebody was going to die in about 30 seconds based on uh, what, what you see. And then you'll see that they give them like five years to live. So 
Anyway, check that out. It's hedgetheeconomy.com. And if you want to uh, you know, invest in this type of thing, you have to be an accredited investor. Of course, accredited investor is something that you are or you are not. It's not something that you have to apply for. It basically just means you make $200,000 a year, $300,000 if filing jointly, or have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence. If you are one, make sure to join the Wealth Formula Investor Club at wealthformula.com. Finally, I just want to remind you one more time, I really want to see as many of you as possible out there in Dallas, September 27th, 28th, and now you can meet my wife as well, as she will be out there with me. Uh, check that out, uh, this meetup event for Wealth Formula, uh, Wealth 2.0, and uh, go check that out at wealthformulaevents.com. That's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.